live from Austin, Texas. Welcome to Tate Talks, the podcast where successful business owners go for the latest ideas on sales, marketing, hiring, and success. Get ready. Here is your host, Chris Tate. And record and we're live. All right, welcome to Tate Talks. Uh, I am privileged to have uh, the next guest on. His name is Matt Sharp. He is the founder and CEO of KidStrong. Matt, welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me. Awesome, man. Well, just give the audience a little rundown. Uh, who is Matt Sharp? Uh, currently, uh, CEO and founder of KidStrong. Uh, me and my wife started KidStrong for our, our daughter Ella a few years ago, and it's uh, kind of taken off on us uh, in a good way. Um, so that's my day job. Uh, in my past life, most of my experience has been fitness or technology. I worked for the government for 10 years before kind of going down the entrepreneurial path. Yeah. Uh, have owned CrossFit, boot camp gyms, boutique fitness, and then um, these things don't normally go together. But tech and technology company, I was president and co-founder of a technology company called Causely. And we worked with about 3,000 uh, gyms and churches uh, to help them with philanthropic giving through their businesses and marketing. So all over the place. Uh, but when I had kids, everything changes and you, you, you know, you want something for your kids that doesn't exist. So we had to build it. So that's where kids from came from. Awesome, man. Uh, I want to unpack a lot of that stuff because it's a lot. It's a, it's yeah. a, a journey and I, I want to ask you specifics here. So I was on your LinkedIn profile and it looked like you were a uh, detective for the police department. Mm -hmm. So, How'd you get into law enforcement and, you know, what was the day-to-day -day like being a detective? Uh, so got into law enforcement because I loved playing team sports in high school. I played football in high school and college and just loved the camaraderie of that. And I was, I was, if I, if I hadn't played uh, collegiate sports, I probably went to the military uh, and tried to do whatever the coolest thing was in the military at the time. Yeah. Uh, I just always enjoyed that. And there was, there was also this part of, I always wanted to do something that had meaning behind it or that created some sort of impact and law enforcement was a natural fit when I, so I went to Eastern Kentucky university. It was nationally ranked school for law enforcement. I got my, I got two undergraduate degrees, uh, one in criminal justice, one in police administration, and then master's degree in criminal justice. And that led to working for a police department in Lexington, Kentucky. I was a patrolman for three years and then worked in robbery homicide for a couple of years and then was selected to DEA task force. I got to work for the DEA for three years, which was really cool. Um, and I loved the work. I loved the work of being a policeman. I love the impact you had. Um, but when you look at people that spend 20, 25 years there, uh, they're looking pretty rough <laughs> when they retire. I, and I'd also done everything I wanted to do at the police department. I was detective. I got to do, the, I got to do all the, uh, all the stuff you see in the movies. I got to do all that cool stuff and you kind of get that stuff out of your system. And I'd always been very entrepreneurial on the side. I started some, I'd gotten some patents on some police products that I came up with during the police academy um, and end up starting a CrossFit gym on the side with a business partner that business partner ended up starting, he had a, he had a tech development company that eventually became Causely. So I helped out for this. I helped out for 
a couple of years. We just really enjoyed working together and it really scratched the entrepreneurial bug. And I had to look at, okay, I don't want to spend my next 10 to 15 years uh, in this kind of preset system that is law enforcement or make the leap over to entrepreneurship. And it was, there's not very many people that quit jobs with pensions that work for the government at 10 years. And most people thought I was crazy. I would say 99.9% .9 of people thought I was crazy at the time, but uh, it was really a long-term play, you know, for me and made the switch and just fell in love with it. I don't think I could ever go back to any sort of like normal job ever again. Um, and just really fell in love with solving problems and building things. And when you work in a more structured environment, like a uh, really big corporation or the government, it's, it's more of like just keeping things moving that have been in place for a long time. There's not as, there's not as much innovation or iteration or invention or building. And I really enjoyed that. I've, I've been like that since I was a kid. So, uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun and day to life, day to day life, uh, lots of paperwork. Um, I, we always, I always talk about like, it's like three days of paperwork for 30 minutes of like fun. And that's, that's really, that's exactly how it is. You know, you go through like bank robbery and car chase. It's a very cool hour. And then you spend the next three days, you know, doing all the paperwork for it. There's just a lot of that. Uh, yeah. It was a, it was a fun job. I love the guys I worked with. Uh, I was really attracted to investigations because of, again, it's like a big puzzle. And most of the guys I worked with could could probably be successful entrepreneurs if they had that bug, just because they're so good at seeing like massive puzzles and all how all these pieces fit together and these long-term projects that were investigations. So I really enjoyed that part. And the psychology of, you know, the interviews, I really enjoyed all that stuff and the camaraderie, but you know, made the switch and haven't looked back. That's awesome. So were you like, where did the, the bug start? Were you like, you know, the kid with like the lemonade stand when you were like 11 years old or like where, like, I know you get a couple of patents, yeah. but where did it actually start? Kind of like that. Most of my, I would say most of mine started uh, with selling art. Uh, I was an artist when I was a kid. There's very few like jock artists. Uh, it was kind of a weird combo, but I would, even when I was really young, I would sell drawings. I'd do portraits of people and sell drawings. And then that broke into murals and businesses uh, and murals on cars. And, and, you know, it just, I think something clicks some, you know, in your, your brain sometimes when you make something and then somebody pays you for it and you've enjoyed making it. Right. And you're just like, Oh, like that's a thing. Well, I'm hooked on like that thing. You know, versus if I go somewhere and they just tell me, go do this and we'll pay you. It was, it was just like, here's a problem. I can come up with a solution and then I will give it to them and then they will pay me. And I've, I've loved the whole process. Um, and that probably started, I, I would, I'm kind of a weird kid. Most, I would say most entrepreneurs are a little strange. Um, and it probably started like before high school. It was definitely before high school. It was probably like seventh or eighth grade. I began selling art pieces. So that's where it started. And it's just, I think you have to be, you know, I, I, there's probably a lot of dyslexic uh, founders of company. Like you just have to be a little off. Like you have to look at the world and say, Oh, there's a better way to do that. Even though like, that's the way it's been done for like tens or hundreds of years, you have to be a little kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but that process of enjoying like finding that solution is, is you know, 
it's very intoxicating for people that are entrepreneurs. And, you know, hopefully if you're in that grind long enough, you like hit something that actually like may, may, makes it all worth it. Cause a lot of those don't. Yeah. Um, yeah but I, I feel like most, I feel like most entrepreneurs like kind of have that, they're just kind of built that way. Um, and you just hope that like it ends up making the money cause not all of them end up making it, you know, or they waste away in some career because they don't, they don't kind of get, get together enough. Um, I don't think courage is the right word, but like, it's very scary to make the leap. And there are a lot of, you know, people that would love to do that, but they just, I don't think they have the faith in themselves to do it. So. That was something I was going to ask you later on, but you know, now that we're on the topic, I kind of want to dive into it. So there's a lot of people that want to be entrepreneurs, right? They, they put it in their mm-hmm. bios on Instagram and, you know, they, they start. It's very um, cool now. <laughs> it is. It is. Gary, the, yeah. Gary, v, uh, the entrepreneurship, uh, you know, ride here, but, um, a lot of times they'll get stuck. They'll get to a certain point and they don't know how to push forward. Did you ever get to that point yeah. where you were just like, I've built all this, the infrastructure is there. Just, I need to throw some gas on this. Like, did you ever get stuck at all? Uh, yeah, all the time. I would say, I would say my, and I think if people actually listen to Gary V, he's not saying, you know, you're, you're 22, you should be the CEO of some company you start, you should quit and go do that. He's saying like, do your day job. And then you have like an extra six hours a day. That's when you build like your dream project. And then at some point that those things can trade places. And it's the people that make the leap without going through that. Uh, I think who was it? TD Jakes always, always says like, if you don't take the stairs, you don't deserve to be there. You know, like if you, you haven't earned it, right? So like if you take the elevator, you're going to lose. It's why lottery winners within like years, they're bankrupt because they didn't like go through the stages. And uh, I think you just, so for, for me personally, like a lot of things were side projects and it allows you to test and iterate on these ideas without putting your entire financial security at, at risk. And I think most people are not willing to go through that. Like that's a lot of work it's a lot of work and there's a grind and you don't win very much and no one is seeing this work. So, you know, anytime I see somebody posting about this stuff on Instagram or Facebook, like it's, there's almost a 0% chance they are going to be successful because if you have time to do that, you're not doing the actual work to like make this thing happen. And most people that are successful would never do that anyway. Um, But I, I really believe in, you know, you do your day job, that's your security. And then you do, you do your passion project on the side, you put the work in and I have this conversation with people all the time. Like you put the work in and then when that thing has enough data points that you can make the leap, then it's not that risky. It is very risky um, to have an idea and quit because most of what you think is wrong anyway. Elon Musk always has this great quote where, you know, when you start a business, 90% of what you think is wrong. You just don't know what 90% it is because you haven't, you haven't like started to take the steps. So I'm a real big fan of do it on the side, put the work in, get the data and then make, make the switch when it makes sense. Do you feel like that's why a lot of entrepreneurs are, are unsuccessful is because they, they put all their eggs in one basket. So they say, Hey, I got this idea. I'm going to go all in. They quit the day job. And then it's like, they haven't proved concept. They don't have enough data points. Like you said, is that yeah. what the, where the failure is coming from? You think? Uh, 
I would say the number one thing I've seen with entrepreneurs that I've kind of bumped into is there's no focus. Okay. It takes so much work to get something off the ground. And the second it gets hard, if you start in another direction, there's, there's a, I don't know if you ever read the book Essentialism by Greg McCowan. He has this great kind of photo that shows a circle and it shows an, basically like an hour of work in every direction. So it ends up looking like a sun. And then the photo beside it is 10 hours of work in the same direction. And the arrow goes really far. And I don't, I don't think most people can focus on it. Like most entrepreneurs, like they get hooked on this. I, I'm an entrepreneur or, and, and I forget who it was. I was saying, I was, I watched an interview one time and a guy was like, I think it was, it may have been Elon Musk. It's like saying like, I want to be famous. Okay. For doing what? Like, <laughs> these people that are famous yeah these people that are famous like you're seeing the last you're seeing the last year of a 20-year journey to get there like and we had we had an employee one time that said um this is really early on she's like i want to be a really well-known pediatric ot i was like okay you have to do the things that it takes to be a really well basically like you can't just be famous like being famous is not an occupation right. so I think, I think that is the number one thing I see. Like they have 50 ideas. They can't go all in on any of those ideas. They won't take any one of them because it's, it's actually scary to go all in on one thing. It's really scary. It's much easier to have 50 ideas in the works and never really do anything. So there's only, I'm a, there's only like the backup, right? You, you always have an excuse. Well, like, well, yeah, that didn't work, but I like 50 other things. Well, when we started Kitchrong, I remember I sat down with one of our investors, who's our partner and co-founder now, and I was like, here's Kitchrong. Like, here it is. And he's like, okay, you know, there's something there, but there's like four key issues that you guys are going to have to solve, or it's not going to be like a really, really big business. And, you know, how are you going to solve those? And I was like, we just are. <laughs> you know, there was, it was just like, we're going like the, the whole attitude was like, it's win or nothing. Okay. It wasn't like, well, we're, as soon as it gets hard, we're going to switch to this other thing or, you know, we're going to trade businesses. And, you know, now we've solved all four of those kind of key issues. Um, but it was just because there had to be so much focus and no one sees the stuff. No one sees all the hours, you know, it, you, there's no t-shirt. You know, and, and most of the stuff you work, you work on is not fair. If is not fun, like you're working on all the stuff that is not fun right. and you have a high chance of failure. So it's definitely not for anybody or for everyone, but man, it's a lot of fun. If, it, if that's how you are you're wired. Um, but I, I think the entrepreneur stuff is hilarious. Um, and I think a lot of people get caught up in that, but it's, it's such a so social media non-reality you know because there are people out here like killing it and working all the time and grinding but you just don't hear about them because they don't have time to do that right. you know yeah well that's the reason for this podcast i wanted to uh shine some light on some people doing some good stuff um you know and, and i appreciate all that at really really good info um i want to get into kids strong you know because you know obviously this is uh, your business now, something that's really taken off, a lot of excitement and attention being drawn to it. So tell us how you came up with the concept behind Kids Strong, like what spawned the idea? Yeah, I mean, in summary, like my wife and I built it for our daughter. My wife 
was a PE teacher for seven years. You know, my background was in tech and fitness. And when our daughter was two years old, you know, Megan was just adamant. She's like, we got to get Ella into something. And I was like, she's two. Like, what do you put it? Like, is there a training center for two year olds to make them like badasses? Like what, there's, what do we do here? And, and I was like, why is this so important? And she, she basically kind of, she basically walked me through like over her seven years of teaching PE every year, the kids were progressively worse. And then, and we're not just talking physically, but socially and emotionally, the kids would come in, they couldn't get dropped off. It was like a nuclear meltdown. And then when they got in there, they, 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 they didn't know how to move. There was no confidence. They couldn't talk to each other. They couldn't talk to, and it was just, if, if those conditions are in place, you can't like learning is the least thing that's going to happen. Like you can't learn. So she was just adamant. And we went to a few places, you know, for kids her age, and I won't go into like all the names, but it was a lot of like dancing with scarves and, you know, play by numbers and high school kids playing with your kids and all the moms were in the corner on their phones. And we were just like, wow, is this it? You know, is this, is this all there is? And, you know, my background was in boutique fitness and CrossFit and, you know, we have a pretty successful CrossFit and, you know, I was just, you just assume that there's going to be something with like a great coach and a good atmosphere and some sort of customer experience. And there's, there's some sort of programming or curriculum that's based on something and none of those things, you know, existed. So those conversations turn into, well, I think we can do it better than this on our own. And we ended up creating a mini kind of prototype in our house. We removed all of our dining room furniture we put rock walls up. Uh, there's rings and trapeze bars hanging out of the ceiling. I do not recommend this for anyone. So, uh, but this, is, awesome. this is what we did. Um, funny story, when we sold the house, the people that looked at the house actually put a clause in that we had to leave that room the way it is. Our real estate agent said, no one's going to buy this house with this freaking crazy jungle gym in the dining room. Right. But it worked out. Um, so we started training her at home. And you know, she started responding to the training really well. That led to, I bet there's some other parents that would like this type of training with their kids, which led to a pop-up class. And again, this is where like, you don't go from zero to like big business. We went from zero to 20, 20 kids in a pop-up class in a warehouse next to a CrossFit that didn't have a bathroom. That's how Kids Trump started. It was, it was as ghetto as like ghetto gets. You park by a dumpster, you walk up a service ramp, and you go to class and there's, you know, electrical boxes over there and the place is gray. Yeah, not not super sexy, but this is how I think good, I, like you have to put your ideas through this phase um, or you're skipping steps, like you're skipping the stairs. So within four to six weeks, we started to see major changes in these kids and these parents were like coming back saying, my kid's a different kid. I can't believe he was doing this. You'd have moms in the lobby like crying because their kid is more confident. Um, and you, you know, those are all early data points that you're onto something. And then we spent probably the first year in this kind of prototype phase, you know, and I, I remember reading about Apple they built, Steve Jobs built the first Apple store in a warehouse and it was in the middle of the warehouse and they basically played with different designs. They'd move the tables around that you, okay, you're going to stand here. I'm going to stand here. Let's put different colors, different lights. And they did it for about a year before they ever put one somewhere. 
And I remember reading that and I was like, okay, this could be like our warehouse. This could be like our prototype. Let's test like lots of things here. You know, it's, it's very inexpensive test. Um, and also, also I think a lot of entrepreneurs skip this phase of, will someone actually pay you for this, your idea? So we started charging from the very first day because we wanted to put us, we wanted to put ourselves on the hook to provide enough value that people would pay and stick around. So the, that every time we had a class, it would sell out and we were like that for about a year. And then a group of people, uh, Zan Carr, a uh, group from, he was in a group in Dallas who owned all the Orange Theories, uh, found Kid Strong and he was just like, this is going to be the next big thing. You guys got to come to Dallas and come to Frisco. And we'd never heard of Frisco. And <laughs> long story short, we end up opening our first location in Frisco, Texas, which no one opens. You, you never have a prototype in Kentucky and open your first one in Texas. Like these things do not make sense. Right. Um, but there was, there was a lot of really good families that wanted us here. And I remember reading a story and I don't know if you know the story about the Wright brothers, but it's really interesting. So the Wright brothers were in Ohio originally. And every time, every time the plane, so they had this prototype plane and every time it would crash, it would destroy all the parts because there wasn't enough wind and the ground was really hard. So they pulled out a meteorological map and they said, Who, where is the best wind and where is the softest ground? So that was Kitty Hawk. So they basically moved everything to Kitty Hawk. They didn't know anybody. They didn't have, no fam they didn't have any family there. Um, and, you know, eventually that's, you know, where the first airplane was invented. So when we looked at Lexington, it was like our Ohio. Like it can only be, we can only have so many locations in Lexington. And you look at Dallas, you're like, wow. You know, if this thing takes off, you could have like 20, 25 locations in one city. You're going to get lots of data really quickly. You're going to get lots of families in the system. You know, that could be our Kitty Hawk. And, you know, we end up really kind of crazily selling our house, selling a car, donating half our furniture to a refugee family and moving to Texas all in about the span of a week. And we opened kitchen. Yeah, it was, I do not, again, I do not recommend these things. Um, <laughs> But it was, it was kind of like those, it was one of those, like we we're scooting our chips across the table kind of moments. Yep. And we opened Kidstrong Frisco six weeks later with almost 200 kids and no one had ever heard of us. Awesome. So that really kind of lit the kind of, that kind of lit the torch on all the, all the growth here and, you know, people hearing about us. And then later that year we won a tech competition called Code Launch for the online product. And, you know, we've been kind of rolling since then. That's incredible. So how many locations is there um, currently for KidStrong? So we just opened our seventh and our goal is to open 15 in 2020 and then 50 the year after. Awesome. So, and you guys yeah. are setting up, where, where's the target um, demo? Uh, I mean, what cities, what populations, what are you guys looking to, where are you guys looking to put these uh, places at? Yeah, that's a good question. So we're looking at places that have a high density of kids under nine. Uh, target demo is usually anywhere from median income, 75,000 plus. Um, and then you want, you want, you want probably 20 to 35,000 kids under nine within a 10 to 15 minute drive time of that location, which opens up a lot of places in the United States. Uh, it's, curious enough, we look, we look for where orange theories are going. And which ones are successful, you know, and it allows us to do like a really quick kind of swatch of an area and, and think about where to go. Cause there's, 
there's very expensive systems that go into figuring out where those go. And you can look at you can look at performance numbers and see, okay, that was a good pick. And, you know, they have 900,000 members and the demographics are very, very similar. And then we'll also look at competitive businesses or businesses that work with kids, uh, preschools, things like that. We look for density there. Awesome. And so this is a franchise model. And um, I think currently, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're looking for area developers to kind of mm -hmm. buy up territories. What is a ideal, you know, franchise owner or area developer? Like what characteristics do they have to have for them to kind of get on board with this program and, and your concept? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things we look for. One of them is they have to be a really good cultural fit for us. Um, they have to believe in the mission of KidStrong. They have to, you know, for us, this is very important work. And it's, it's, it's really a mission kind of driven company. So you want, you want some alignment there. You don't want, we don't want people that are more transactional, you know. Uh, a second thing I would say is we want people that have experience in franchising, owning and operating multiple locations, you know, because we're, we're also still learning and, you know, KidStrong works. Like I'm, I'm, severely confident that it works like we've seen it work you know we have several thousand kids in the program the the number one kind of bottleneck for us is going to be can we find really good people to help us scale the idea and and, and scale the concept um and if you have if you can find people that have a really good track record of that that are really smart and kind of been there done that it just allows you to move so much faster uh, i think we've had about five 500, a little bit over 500 people fill out uh, an application to own a KidStrong. Uh, and that those are great numbers, but, but you know, some of these people, it's like the first business they've ever owned, uh, or they might live in an area where we wouldn't put a KidStrong. So 500 sounds like a really sexy number, but, you know, it re really comes down to like who, who is actually going to be able to open and operate and, you know, also believes in the things we believe. So, you know, experience is key, the territory is key, the data and the demographics have to make sense. And then we really want like alignment on the vision. Awesome. Now there's, you know, I would say for my LinkedIn network or, you know, my immediate network, there's a lot of people, I guess, um, kind of coming up maybe my age or younger that have a lot of good operational experience. Maybe they've been, you know, managers at Orange Theory, maybe they've been regionals, whatever. Um, they may be a good fit, but there's also a financial aspect that goes into this. What would be your advice for some of those people, you know, that want to be entrepreneurs that want to, let's just say franchise something, um, but they don't have the capital to do it. What would be some avenues that they can go about? Yeah, there, there's a lot of people that have operational experience that don't have capital that still have a lot of opportunity in front of them. They might just not, they have to put the pieces together. There's also a lot of people that, that have capital or have money to invest that have no idea how to run or operate a location, but they want to put their money to work or, and, or they believe in a concept. And, and I would say, you know, when we, when pe we have people all the time that want to that come to us that want to invest in capital and, or they want to own an area, but they don't have any operational experience. They have no one on the ground. And the first thing I do is like, the first thing I say to them is, okay, you have to find somebody, that knows what they're doing and running these locations and you have to really incentivize them. And usually that's through equity or payment, just kind of depends on how they're wired. Um, 
And the same goes for people that are really good operators. We're working with a group right now that they're going to be an amazing ADs, but they, they're getting a, they're getting somebody to finance the entire project who would never like they, who has no experience doing what they do and they don't have the capital to do what he does. And those are some really good partnerships and you can find them. But if you, if, if you really want to make it happen, there's always a way. And money is rarely the thing that holds people back. I know everybody thinks that it is, but money is rarely the thing that keeps people from being successful. That's, that's great intel because, you know, I think that's, a, it, at least in my network, that's what everyone talks about is, right? I, hey, I've done this for so many years. I, I want to own something. And they look at their bank account and they're like, you know what? This uh, doesn't seem feasible. I'm going to keep working this job and probably transition because there's no upward mobility. Now, sure. do you play matchmaker between these people or is it their responsibility typically to find the right partner? Uh, I would say it's case by case. Some people need to do the work uh, and they need to form these relationships. And if you, if it, if you do all that work for them, it might, they didn't take the stairs. So like they might not have put the work in to really appreciate like this investor. Um, so we do it occasionally, but it's very case by case. Um, I, I normally will say, I'll normally will walk them through the process of doing it on their own sure. because if they fall off after that, it was definitely not meant to be. Or if they take that advice and they go put it to work and they find investors at that point, I'm more than happy to like talk to the investors and meet with them and fly and meet with them because they've put the work in. And I, I just, I have, you know, we have a lot more faith in people that put the work in. It's awesome. All right. So kind of more on that note, I would say, you know, what do you wish you had known when you first started out? Um, that you know now, like what's, what's the one thing that you wish you had known? I think, I think, I think the main thing I would probably, if I had to do over again is I would just invest more time in learning and kind of growing my knowledge base and just getting started. Um, I don't think you do not have to go to business school to start a business. You know, there's all these stories that people tell themselves about why they can't do this thing. And I don't necessarily think I believe those things, but I, I think I probably believe that these things were, that it was further away than it actually was. Um, and I think, I think I saw a stat the other day that the most successful entrepreneurs are 40, between 42 and 45. And I think, you know, that sounds, you know, if you'd asked me that at 25, I was like, oh, that sounds really old. Um, and I think everyone assumes that, you know, most successful entrepreneurs, these 18 year old like Mark Zuckerberg's, but you know, when you look at the data, that's really far from the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think it just takes you a little while to like get your crap together and start to get perspective. And, you know, you've put the work in mm -hmm. and uh, there's a really cool book I read where basically this guy talks about like, you put all this work in to like buy a bus ticket because every now and then the bus like comes by. And if you haven't put the work in, then you can't get on the bus. And every now and then this like opportunity will come by, it will open it up. And I think, I think probably the mistake I made was thinking that it was just way further off from where I was at. And instead of saying, you know, like, why not me? You know, why, why does it have to take so long? Why can't we start now? Uh, Cause that's very much my attitude now. 
and, and when people come to me, I'm like, sweet, or you can start tomorrow, right? We're like, well, you know, I want to get this thing in place, and then I want to make sure I've moved, and I'll finish this. I'm like, okay. You know, we started Strong when I had, I was working 50, 60 hours a week, and my wife was eight months pregnant. So <laughs> there's no good time to start. There's no, it's like, you know, when should I start working out? Today. You know, when should I start eating right? Today, you know, so there's, you know, just, just kind of getting that attitude. I, I would say another thing was I didn't have any mentors growing up. I came from an area that, you know, was fairly poor. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a ton of opportunity there. There wasn't a lot of people you could look to that had been really been successful. Uh, most people just stayed, you know, kind of where they grew up and, you know, now I really understand the power of having kind of a mastermind group of people around you, having a really good network, and then having really good mentors. And mentors of mentors that are where you want to be. Right. Right. Uh, so, like, what I look for in mentors now is somebody that is maybe 10 to 15 years ahead of me that has run a successful business that is also a great father there's also a great husband that has a really, you know, an awesome family. I'm probably not going to have somebody mentor me that is 15 years in front of me. That's really rich and they've been divorced five times and their kids hate them because right. I don't want that advice. I don't want to be that person. So I think it's really important when you look for these guys, unless you're just looking for advice, you know, I might ask that guy for advice on, you know, banking. But when I look at like holistic kind of mentorship, you know, I really want to find guys that have kind of been through the fire and they will say, okay, you know, I remember when we were at your stage and, you know, me and my wife used to fight a lot because I worked all the time. Here's something we learned, like every other Thursday, go on a date, like block it off. It's in concrete, block it off. Like that's the type of mentors I want around me. Do you have any of those in your life now? I do have some, um, but I'm always on the look for more and, you know, the more successful kids from gets, the more I've you've been able to kind of like get access to people like that. Cause those people are really busy and, you know, I didn't understand. I think a lot of young people too, just assume that if you find somebody that's successful and you email them, that they're going to stop everything they're doing and become your mentor. And that's just not how it works. Like these, these people are very busy and I understand the other side of that now. Um, but I try to, I try to find those people and either provide some sort of value, any value I can, or just be hyper accommodating. Like, you know, there was a guy I've texted and I said, if you will have coffee, I will fly to, you know, your office, which is many States away for coffee. And I really, that is, that's 100% like the truth. You know, if that guy wants to have coffee, I will definitely fly out there for 15 minutes because those, that, that, those interactions are just so valuable. Those networks are so valuable. And I think, I think being really humble and having like a student's mentality um, is the way to go. You awesome. know, I really believe in that. That's great. Now you, uh, there's two industries that typically scare people off, right? Because the, the clientele tends to be pretty, pretty picky, right? Or pretty opinionated. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's probably kids services and pets. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Now, a way to combat that, I believe, is through having excellent people to run your locations um, and kind of manage these personalities, um, but also kind of 
do the service and just be good people overall. What do you guys look for, for kids, strong coaches, for managers? Like what is, what is the makeup um, and what kind of process are you putting them through? Yeah. So what we look for are great coaches and great leaders and the way we kind of find those people are um, core value alignment. And then, you know, there's a basic skill set that you want there, but we can teach if, if people have kind of the basic ingredients, we can teach them a lot of the stuff we need, but I really believe in that. So Jim, you know, Jim Collins, good to great that book where he says, you know, first who, then what, I, I believe in that as much as any other business kind of tactic as anyone. It's just, it's so important. Like great people, one great person is worth 10 mediocre people. They just are. So the, for what we do is we post all of our core values online. And when somebody applies for us, we make sure that they go look at those and that they feel good about those. And then when we sit down for an interview, when we get to that phase, one of the first things we go through is our core values. And we're just like, this is how it is. This is what we believe. This is where the company's headed. And if, if, if you're in alignment with that, then there's, you know, that's a good fit. And if you're not, that's completely okay too. We're also a really big fan of hell yes or no hiring. Uh, I think Derek Sivers kind of coined that term like hell yes or no. Um, because it's just a, a good person is just so important. And if you've hired a bunch of people and I'm sure, you know, career plug, you guys are like exposed to a ton of this, a bad hire. It's, it's not that they don't do the job good. They also drag everything else down with them. So it's not just that they're like, there's a zero, like it's not a net zero. It's, it's a net negative. And culturally, your good people, good people do not want to work. A's do not want to work with D's. They do not. A's want to work with A's. So if you only hire A's, you tend to attract more A's. But the the lower those grades go down, the lower like everyone's score go down. And you also, you also run the danger of losing your A's because you've kind of tainted the pool. So we're just obsessed with, great cultural fits for us. And, you know, plus, plus they have to be hyper-professional and they have to love kids. And if you go through the core values, like all the kind of ingredients are there, but if somebody is not a good culture fit for us, we will not hire them. I don't care how many letters they have after their name. I don't care like if they're famous, like I don't care about any of those things because you know, the ability to work with and lead people is the number one job skill right now. It's not like where you went to school, um, or what skill set, like I will take a leader and a problem solver and a good teammate over any of those guys. Right. That's something that I kind of, you know, adapted late, later in my fitness career was hiring people, not paper. Right. So we used to sure just take, you know, if you applied, we would invite you to kind of a group interview and we found out who you were as a person before we even looked at the resume um, to just make sure that you were a fit. And, you know, nine times out of 10, you can teach the skills, um, or the processes like sales or anything like that, um, within the organization, mm-hmm. if someone has the right attitude. So, um, what do you guys look for, you know, I guess, attitude wise, you know, does someone have to be really, really outgoing to work at a kid strong, um, or can they kind of be even killed? Uh, so big one for us is humble professional. That's one of our core values and mind of a student. So that's more of like mindset. And then when you get into kind of like the nuts and bolts, we have a wheel that's called the DNA of a Kid Strong 
a unicorn coach. We call them unicorn coaches because they're very rare. And so on this wheel, there are all these traits. Uh, professionalism is one. Uh, the ability to teach is one. And um, passion and love for coaching. There's all these kind of like things you would think of. Uh, and then we, we might have some that might, might not be so evident to other people. So a big one for us is performer. And the reason performer is so big is because we would have people come in that have a really good resume. Um, and they were okay on the interview, but then when they taught the class, it was just, it was just kind of blah. Like it was just kind of dull. And you're like, man, this person's so educated. They have so many like coaching credentials and this class is really boring. And it was because they didn't have this performer wasn't, was not like part of their DNA. And if you've ever, you know, or any kind of group fitness class, the coach that there, you can take the same programming and you can have a great coach, and a terrible coach. And it is a completely different experience if you have a good coach doing the programming. It's just, it's so different. And, you know, we, we basically reverse engineered all of our best coaches to come up with this, you know, DNA of a Kipstrom coach. And when we hire, we walk everyone through those. We're like, you have to have all six of these at least a little bit or it's not a good fit. And then every evaluation throughout training has all six of those traits throughout throughout the evaluation process because we just we've just learned like how important those are that's awesome now you know I, there's so many other you know businesses out there that um you know our, our kids services right there's schools as well there, there's a lot of competition for maybe coaches or managers and the people that you're looking for tell you know and this is a problem across all retail businesses brick and mortar is finding good people what tools and what are you doing to either recruit or just find uh, these unicorn coaches or, or managers? Yeah, so there's, there's two kind of key things for that. I think one of them is who you are and the next one is like, what are the tools you use? So who you are, if a business doesn't know who they are, clearly they don't know who to attract. You know, like uh, if, you, if you are a rock concert, you have to market yourself as a rock concert. Because if people that don't like rock show up, it's not going to be a great concert, right? Mm -hmm. So I think businesses really have to know who they are. They need a, they need at least a clear, we are blank, or we believe in blank, or at least like a couple of core values, or like even you know their tagline. It just has to be super clear because when people, you you have to let people self-select. You know, not everybody's a good fit for Kidstrong. Not everybody's a good fit for Chick-fil-A. Not everybody's a good fit for Orange Theory. But every one of those has to clearly define who they are or you're not going to get people that are good fit. So that's one. And the second one is tools. So we use CareerPlug um, because it just allows us to – hiring is such a pain in the butt. It is a, it is a really kind of cumbersome process for, the, for every location, any bit – you know, we talked to lots of owners of fitness businesses and boutique fitness. Hiring is a huge pain in the butt. There's not a good system for it. It's just so much work. There's so many, it, it's hard to get, it's hard to get the job descriptions out there to the right people. And then once they come in, there's just a bunch in this funnel and you don't really want to talk to all these people. You just want to talk to the best ones. So one of the best things we've done is get career plug in place uh, because it allows, one, it allows you to throw a wider net. And there's always more fish 
and, and when you have a wider net. And the second part that was really important to us, there's a few parts, but the second part was that it helps like filter those down before they get to our directors and our GMs. Because if you hand, if you hand a GM or a director, you know, a hundred resumes, like that is a nightmare scenario because they still have to do their job, right? <laughs> but there's, there's probably five good ones in there. So one of the things we love about career plug is the assessment process by which, you know, we throw the wide net, lots of people apply, but only the good ones like make it to us. And it allows us, it's, it's not only looking through those resumes, but it's all the bad calls you avoid. It's all the bad interviews you avoid. It's all the two weeks of training, the bat, the wrong person that you avoid. So it's, it's not just like in the beginning, but like this is, there's a rippling effect of like wasting your time that happens. So, you know, I, I recommend anybody that is, you have to have a system, you know, like career plug or some sort of system that filters those things down, or you're just spending a lot of time on things that are not productive, like they're not moving your business forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. What would be your advice um, for someone that is looking to start a concept or a business? Just one piece of advice. I know there's like, you could probably write a book on, on it. You should, but, uh, just yeah. one. Well, we're actually, we're actually helping somebody kind of get off the ground. Now the number okay. one thing is like, you just have to get started. Like okay. you have to find a way to like get this thing, your idea in front of someone else and see if they like it. Uh, I, I am a, I am very down on people that have like two years of thinking about it. Okay. Like, I'm just very, that's, I'm very down on that. Like, just start, like, most of this is wrong. Like, just get started. And usually my advice is, okay, I have an idea for a fitness concept. Sweet. You could do it in your garage. You could have your friends and family come over. You could put them through it. You could build your own equipment. You could make a, you could make a deal with a local gym that does personal training. You could start it there. You know, just get started because most of this is wrong. And, you know, out of those first five people, they're going to, they're going to give you a lot of feedback on what's working and what's not. And KidStrong right now does not look like it did when we started. And it's not just that, you know, it's, it's prettier now, but like the product is very different because we got started really early and, you know, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, but like we had like bubble machines and shakers like early on because that's what a lot of people in the space were doing to like keep kids attention was they had these like little shakers and they do bubbles at the end. Right. And we just like walked in one day like, man, this is the lamest. We do not need these things. Like the parents hate this stuff. Like it's, and then we just got rid of it. And then, you know, you make a thousand decisions like that, but we would have never known that if we had to get started. So my advice is always like start now get it in front of people. Don't just ask your friends that tell you like everything you do is sunshine. You know, you need those people, but you also need to get around people that tell you the, you know, the cold, hard truth. Like this idea sucks. Right. Uh, or, you know, you could, you could, what you're telling me is okay, but if you switch it to this, it might be a better fit. And, and don't take advice from people that haven't been there and done that. Mm -hmm. um, especially like business advice. Now, Customer feedback is customer feedback. Right. You know, if, if you put five people through this new fitness regime and like four of them end up in the hospital and the last one hates it, it's probably not a business there. Sure. 
sure. you know, but if, if you put five people through it and they're texting you the next day about how awesome it was and can I bring my friend, you know, okay, move to step two, <laughs> you right. know, you, you're looking for that data. How much should you listen to? Um, I don't necessarily think that I would call them haters, but there's always going to be people with their opinions about, oh, that'll never work. You know, did you ever have sure. any of those people kind of like when you were coming up with Kids Strong and said, no, that'll never work or that'll never happen? Or oh, everyone. Too- yeah. Okay. Most people are going to tell you it doesn't work. And usually those people are the people in your circle, you know. Okay. So you just have to temper that stuff, you know. There, there comes a point where if you really, really believe in something, especially if you're solving a problem that you have, I think you have a little more credibility there. Um, but a lot of people thought we were crazy and it was varying degrees of crazy. You know, it was like, you're ruining your life crazy to like, ah, I just don't know if that's going to work. Um, I would say this, some of the best advice I saw, I think it was a product development book. And this is a kind of a product kind of feedback thing. When people say something is wrong and they tell you why, they're usually right that something is wrong, but the why is usually wrong. Mm. Like, for example, they will say, somebody would say, like if I went to like a group fitness class and I would say, um, I was really dead in there. Like, I think it was the music. All right, so it was, one, it was probably dead in there. So they're right. But it might not be the music. It might be that the coach was dead, you know, or, you know, I just, I think they're probably, everyone's usually right that it's not, that something's off. I don't think customers necessarily always know why. Do you feel like too many people give up when they hear that? Like, instead of taking it with a grain of salt, they just say, oh, it's just bad all around and I'm going to stop. I think, I think everyone quits too early. There are like, if you look at, I think most billionaires right now are self-made. I think the last stat I saw that most of them were self-made. Right. If you look at where they started, like it was as like Amazon was in a basement with Amazon spray painted on the wall. Jeff Bezos was like boxing books up on the concrete. Like yep. it was there. It's always tough. And I, I think, I think the best advice I've heard, there was a, I can't remember who it was. Uh, there was a successful business guy. He said, you just have to look at starting a business. Like you're crossing a jungle and there are all kinds of dangerous things in that jungle. Um, and you have to get really good people around you, but like, you know, that it's dangerous and it's just part of it. And the most successful engineer in or most successful entrepreneurs, they don't actually want to get out of the jungle. They enjoy, they enjoy that jungle and that process. And, I think just you, you have to embrace the suck of entrepreneurship if you're going to make it longer term. Like it's just, it's such a roller coaster. There are days when we're just like, we've made it. And the next day we're like, holy crap, like, what are we doing? And then literally the next day, like, oh, this thing happened. So we've made it. And then it's just, it's such a roller coaster. And just knowing that, just knowing that that's just part of it and, and being completely okay with that, uh, I think is a key for long-term survival. That's awesome. It's a journey. It's a ride. So never don't You have to love the process. You have to love the process. It's like working out. Like very, very, very few people love to work out all the time. Right. But you just, at some point you have to enjoy it or you're never, you have to just say like, okay, it's, I'm going to go in it's going to suck, but like, I'm going to feel really good the rest of the day. And if I do this for six weeks, I'm going to feel better. You just have to get where you enjoy that. That's awesome. 
I got one last question for you. What, what other concept or business or product uh, is out there or emerging that you're really intrigued with? Um, I don't want to tell you about some of them. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. Give me the inside scoop. Uh, I'm blanking here because uh, there, there's something that we're helping out with in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, it's, a, it's a concept called Stronger Life. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's two kind of, there's two kind of parts of, there's two kind of parts of this kind of group of people that are, that are heavily ignored. So, uh, kids and elderly, I think kids and elderly are really ignored. Um, I think most, most attention's focused on, uh, adult fitness. So fairly healthy people that can come to the gym three to five times a week uh, or people that will pay $8. So I think, I think that concept's really exciting um, for me. Um, just because I like going, I like I'll, I always like looking where everyone else is kind of not looking. You know, I remember when we got into CrossFit, we got into it really early on. We were like the 700th affiliate and people thought that was crazy back then. It was stupid and no one's gonna pay $150 a month to work out, you know, but that now to me, like it's not as cool because there's so many, you know. <laughs> So now you're just like, okay, there's, there's too much stuff. There's, there's too much noise here. Like what, what's like the next thing. So I would say those two, you know, are pretty exciting to me. I love Us that. You know, my, uh, my mom is actually a, you know, yoga therapist, teacher and everything. And um, she does like chair yoga uh, on the base at Miramar in San Diego for a lot of, um, you know, the vets um, that have, you know, injuries. Um, but then also there's a lot of elderly people that come through. It's a, you know, commercial gym. And the classes are packed, man. Like there's so many yeah. people in there. And I remember back in the day, um, there was a couple of gyms that had popped up. I forget the name of them, but they were catered to uh, just elderly people. Kind of there was, they had a assigned trainer when they went in and they kind of took them around, but it never really took off anywhere. And I think they actually probably closed, but the, the concept is there and there's so many of those people that are looking for alternative things that can help. So I think that's- Yeah, these two things are fast growing. I think, you know, when you, when you look at the numbers, those two things are fast growing. I think parents want help raising kids. Uh, they don't want to go the traditional route. And I think, you know, elderly people, you know, past 50 is living past 50 is very real now and living past 50 for a long time. And those are years where, you know, your kids are not there, you know, they're looking for community. You know, and just like where you can give kids these like key tools to be a successful adult, there's a lot of like key things that elderly need to like really enjoy and thrive in those years. You know, being mobile, being strong, you know, those things lend to confidence, you know, so all these things are really interconnected. So uh, we like those two because, you know, they're, they're far apart in age, but there's actually a lot of crossover there and why everybody's kind of focused in the middle we like, we like, we like everybody focused in the middle. Yeah. Good. Right. It's good. Um, yeah. Well, that's awesome, Matt. You know, thank you so much for coming on today. There was definitely some real knowledge drops in this. So I'm going to chop this up and um, I'll be putting out some of this content that I'll send over, but I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people find out about Kid Strong? Uh, Kid Strong is just kidstrong.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, just Matt Sharp. If you type in Matt Sharp and Kid Strong, I don't know like the URL for it. I think it's like three, two, one, go. 
And then my email is just Matt at kidstrong.com. And I try to be, I try to respond to emails, you know, fairly quickly, but you know, those are the ways you can follow us. We have a Facebook page, Kid Strong. Uh, we have an Instagram page, Kid Strong. Um, and most people follow us there, but um, yeah, those are the ways you can get in touch with us. Awesome, Matt. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Appreciate it, man. Talk to you later.